Well, friends, this morning, as I mentioned, we had a guest, but we also have another guest um, as well. Uh, Theon, who's going to teach from God's Word this morning, is from West Toronto Baptist Church. I believe he actually spoke here in October? No, it was July. Oh, July. Oh, last year. Okay, July. End of July. July. Yeah, so Tony... Tony's from West Toronto Baptist Church. Uh, he's been a member there for the last nine years. He's, he interned there with Justin. He's currently serving as a deacon at West Toronto. Now, Tony was saved nine years ago, and the first church he ever walked into was West Toronto Baptist Church, and he never left. So we praise God for that. And Tony, we're really excited to have you here, so come and minister to us. Well, it's really good to be here again, and really to see so many people here this morning. Um, I'm thankful for you guys, thankful for how God has worked in your life, and Justin and I and a few brothers at Westron Baptist Church have been praying for you regularly, and it's uh, it's really good to see how the Lord has brought you guys all here this morning. Uh, Well, this morning is indeed Palm Sunday, and I thought it'd be fitting to preach to you on a passage that would relate to the occasion, also to prepare your hearts for Good Friday. So Palm Sunday is, as many of you know, the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And it is marked by his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You see that in the text read to us this morning in Matthew chapter 21. And you'll notice in that text a quotation that Matthew uses from the Old Testament. We know that it is in fact a passage or a text that Jesus fulfilled himself. That quotation, as you know, came from the book of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So turn then in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah. The best way to find the book of Zechariah is to start from the Gospel of Matthew and then work your way backwards, two books, and you'll find yourself in Malachi and then Zechariah. So this morning I get the privilege to preach to you from this Old Testament passage, and I'm really excited to be preaching from this passage because it's really fascinating stuff. I think it's kind of funny that I get to preach on this because I was actually in the middle of my devotion reading Zechariah, and I was, I was actually finishing chapter 9 when Justin texted me and asked me if I wanted to preach here at this church, and I just thought to myself, like, what, what would I preach on? I didn't realize it until, until later that it was Palm Sunday, and I was like, man, this is the perfect text to preach on. So where we, here we are, brothers and sisters, this morning in Zechariah chapter 9. So now before I begin reading from verse 1, I just want to give you a quick overview of the book so that you're up to speed concerning the history and the events that have taken place leading up to our passage this morning. So let's begin by looking at who Zechariah was. Who was Zechariah? In Nehemiah 12, 4 and 16, Zechariah is mentioned, and he was a prophet and a priest of Judah. His name appears in the beginning of the book of Zechariah. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. Now, check this out. You'll find this quite interesting. Zechariah's name means Jehovah remembers. His father's name, Berechiah, means Jehovah blesses. And his grandfather's name, Ido, means his time. Now, when you put these names together, what you get is Jehovah remembers to bless in his time. Isn't that fascinating? In In a nutshell, that is what the book is all about. God remembering his people... God bringing them back from exile and God fulfilling his promises to bless them accordingly in his good timing. 
So Zechariah was a prophet and a priest who had a message for God's people, and it was a message of comfort to them. Verse 13 of chapter 1 says, The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me with gracious words, comforting words. Zechariah echoes the comfort that Isaiah proclaims in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So friends, this morning, the book of Zechariah is a book of comfort. It's a book of comfort for God's chosen people. And the comfort that God brings through Zechariah comes at the right time when the nation of Judah was released by Cyrus from Babylon. If you recall, in 587 B.C., Judah was exiled to Babylon, and then the temple was destroyed. They were exiled for 70 long years. However, by the end of 70 years, they were permitted to return home. So in 536 B.C., after the fall of Babylon, Cyrus permitted a remnant of the Jews to return to their land. And then in 535 B.C., about a year later, they laid the foundation for the temple by Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. Now, the building of the temple was stopped by opposition, we remember. And it is here this morning we find ourselves in the sandals of Zechariah. So Zechariah arrives on the scene with a word from the Lord, not only to call the people of God to return to God, but also to encourage them to continue rebuilding the temple, the walls, and the city of Jerusalem because he is now with them. He is with them. So Zechariah has eight visions from chapters 1 to 6, all of which convey the Lord bringing salvation to the, uh, and, and judgment to the, their enemies. Chapter 7 to 8 records the question about fasting and commemoration of the fall of Jerusalem. However, if you read that chapter, God rejects their fast because it was self-centered, and he calls them to the true standard of fasting that is from the heart. And he promises that their fasting in the glorified city will be turned into feasting. Now, the third and last section of the book, chapters 9 to 14, where we now find ourselves, describes Jerusalem and God's victory over the Gentile nations. God comforts his people in that he promises to avenge them by triumphing over their enemies. Now, there's something amazing here in this text before us. So within the judgment over the nations, there's hope for the nations in him. There's hope for the nations in him. Keep that in mind as we read this passage. So turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9, if you haven't done so already. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 to 10. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 to 10. This is what Holy Scripture says. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. And Hamath also, which borders on it. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Geza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Geza and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a Mongol race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will remove their blood from their mouth and their detestable things from between their teeth. 
Then they also will be a remnant for our God and be like a clan in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. But I will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me, let me pray for us before we begin. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you this morning to thank you that we have this privilege, privilege to look into this Old Testament text and see Christ in it. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who, who died for our sins. We pray, Father, that you would give us um, a spirit of, of grace that we would have our minds open and our hearts engaged in your word, that, Lord, we may see Christ more beautifully and, Lord, that we may glorify him this morning. So please help me to speak clearly. Um, help us, Lord, to engage in your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, one of the most amazing things I've learned in all of Scripture as a Christian is the fact that prophecies get fulfilled. And the reason why it's so amazing is because it really testifies to the fact that God is real, that he is faithful and true to his words. Isn't that right? When God says he's going to do something, it will come to pass. Amen? The passage of Scripture I just read to you is, in fact, prophecy from God, and it is prophecy fulfilled. Let me show you what I mean in a moment, but first, let's break this passage up into two parts, verses 1 to 8 and then verses 9 to 10. So the first part, point number one, if you want to write this down, verses 1 to 8, I'm going to call the human conqueror, the human conqueror. The second part, point number two, verses 9 to 10, I'm going to call the divine conqueror. Two conquerors. What do we mean by that? Now, obviously, based on verse number 9 and 10, you know it's about Jesus. Jesus is the divine conqueror. We know that that prophecy was fulfilled by Jesus. That's obvious. But what about verses 1 to 8? I call him the human conqueror. What am I talking about? Some of you keen Bible students probably know who this is. Who is the human conqueror? Well, between the years of 356 B.C. and 323 B.C., there lived a well-known historical figure that had an enormous impact on Asia and the Middle East. He was known for spreading Greek culture, language, and thought from Greece throughout Asia Minor, Egypt, and Mesopotamia to India, and thus initiated the Hellenistic world. He was the son of a king, and he himself went on to be the successor to his father's throne. Now, he was most famous, listen to this, is most famous for his military conquests between the ages of 20 and 32. Just short, just 12 short years, conquering most of the known world in his day. Who is he? His name is Alexander III of Macedon, known as Alexander the Great, King of Macedonia. And he was the human conqueror prophesied in this text before us. That's right. Did you guys know that? He's the one 
prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, and then fulfilled that prophecy about 200 years later. The amazing thing is, his name was never mentioned in the text at all. However, his military conquests and achievements fit this exact profile to the very letter. It's incredible. If you don't believe me, this is what John MacArthur says. (laughs) He says, There is no Bible commentator that I read, this is him speaking, about 13 commentaries on this, that ever says anything other than this must be Alexander the Great, because this is a chronicle of his massive march through that area. There can be no other explanation. The details are all here. The one article I read said this. Thus, this, it would seem, is a clearly fair description of an invader from the north, Damascus, moving along down south the Mediterranean coast, capturing Tyre as he does so, and then four of the five Philistine cities before stopping short of taking Jerusalem. Alexander, of course, did just this, and was the only person to capture Tyre. The correspondences between the text and the event are so close that many interpreters assume the text was written after the event. Incredible, isn't it? This is exactly what is written in the text before us this morning. And this is what I meant when I said one of the most amazing things I've learned in all of Scripture is the fact that prophecies get fulfilled. We'll take a closer look verse by verse in a second, second, but I want you to understand the thrust of what God is communicating here. Two kings, two conquerors in this passage, okay? Now watch this. One, a human conqueror who brings partial judgment and partial salvation to Judah. We'll see this later in verse 7. The other a divine conqueror who brings not partial, but complete judgment and full salvation, not just to Judah, but to all the nations on the earth. So the thrust of the passage is this. If God can use a pagan, ungodly, violent, and ruthless ruler to bring judgment and salvation, watch what he will do when he sends his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to the earth. So friends, what we have before us is Fulfilled prophecy, firstly in Alexander, and then secondly in Jesus Christ. Let's see this closely by looking at Alexander and his massive military conquest, beginning in verse 1. So main point number one, the human conqueror. I'm just going to grab my water here. All right, verse 1. You guys ready? The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach with Damascus as its resting place. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord, and Hamath also which borders on it. Now, now stop there. Notice the word burden. Zechariah has a prophecy so serious, he calls it the burden of the word of the Lord. So this is big news. This is heavy stuff. Judgment is against the land of Hadrach, Damascus, and Hamath. All of these cities are in the nation of Syria. The judgment first falls on the area of Syria, then Phoenicia, then Philistia, all the regions in which Alexander made his military conquests. In fact, he moves further down south to Egypt, and then he conquers that as well. Now, Hadrach. Hadrach is an obscure place. No one really knows where it is. All the commentaries that I've read have no idea where this place is. Perhaps Alexander passed through that and utterly demolished it, and it was no more. Hamath, however, is 120 kilometers north of Damascus. Now, Damascus 
is the capital city of Syria, and it is a very, very ancient city. It's still the, the capital city of Syria today. And Syria was one of Israel's enemies. So history tells us that Alexander sweeps through Syria from Greece and captures the capital city, Damascus. Now look at verse 1 for a moment. I want you to understand what this says. For the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel, are toward the Lord. What does that mean? This is a very obscure sentence, so it's hard to interpret. But this is what John Calvin says about this sentence, and I think you'll find it really fascinating. He says, When the Jews begin to turn to God with real sincerity, then God will in every way bless them and raise up his hand against their enemies. So in other words, whenever the people of God direct their eyes to him, then the burden of his word would then come upon all of Syria and the list of nations in this passage. Now that could very well be true in light of God using Alexander to destroy all these nations because when the the temple of the Lord was completed in 516 B.C., what happened? Ezra 6.16, I want you to see this, records this. It says, when the temple was completed, and the sons of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of, the, of God with joy. And they offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, male and goats corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. So basically, all the Jews rejoiced and they turned to God. And then 200 years later, Alexander came on the scene and then judgment fell on the nations. Do you guys see that? So according to Calvin... What this little phrase at the end of verse 1, for the eyes of men, especially of all the tribes of Israel toward the Lord, meant was this. Because God's people repented and turned to him, God unleashed his judgment on the nations as he promised he would do. Sorry. There we go. Okay, so that's John Calvin. Now the point is judgment coming upon these nations. That's the point that I want you to primarily understand. Judgment upon these nations. So the judgment of God comes upon Hadrach and Damascus, and then verse 2. Hamath also, which borders on it, verse 3. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Now, how this prophecy gets fulfilled is, is amazing. So after Syria, Alexander makes his way down to the coast of Phoenicia. Next stop, Tyre and Sidon. Now, Tyre and Sidon were small cities in the land of Phoenicia and often associated with one another because of their close proximity. However, they were located by the coast and were well known for their great maritime accomplishments. They were known for building great ships, large ships to travel the Mediterranean Sea, battleships for war. Now, did you know that if anyone ever wanted to capture and overthrow Tyre, that would have been extremely difficult to do? Tyre was located both on the Mediterranean coast as well as on an island about a kilometer offshore. And it would have walls built all around it about 150 feet high. So how high, is, how high are these ceilings? They're like 15 feet high. 150 feet high walls. The only way to really reach it would be to build a causeway, something like a bridge, from the mainland to the island. And even when you get there by a causeway, you would have to penetrate their 150 feet walls. Now that's a tough task. 
Tyre, you can imagine, must have really felt invincible to anybody seeking to defeat them. They built themselves like a fortress. Isn't that what the text says? For Tyre built herself a fortress and piled up silver like dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Yet the Lord says in verse 4, Behold, the Lord will dispossess her and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. And so how does God do that? He raises up a mighty pagan king to demolish a so-called mighty fortress. When Alexander made his conquest into Tyre, did you know it only took him seven months to do it? Many kings and nations have tried to overthrow Tyre, and many failed. History said that Alexander was very angry when he came to Tyre because they refused to give him supplies. So he built himself this causeway on the waters from the shore to the island, and then he marched his army over. He was able to penetrate the walls, even though they were tossing burning bricks over his troops. He penetrated the walls, he defeated the Tyrians, and burned the city until it was nothing more than a pile of ash. By the end of the siege of Tyre, it was estimated that 8,000 Tyrians were slaughtered and 30,000 were sold into slavery. And to put that in perspective, of the death toll among Alexander's army, there were only 400. Now this is what happens when God executes his promises. It comes to pass no matter how invincible you think you are. So Alexander makes his sweep through Syria, he wiped them out. He made his way to Phoenicia, wiped them out. Next stop, Philistia. And guess what they were doing when they saw what he just did to Tyre? They were shaking in fear. Verse 5. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in great pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation, has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a Mongol race will dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. Exactly what happened when Alexander passes through Philistia. Now, who were the Philistines? Do you guys remember? The Philistines were the ones who always harassed Israel. Do you guys remember that back in the book of Judges? They were Israel's traditional enemy way back in the times of the Judges. And they were a proud people. They thought that they could go ahead and bully God's people without consequences. Well, now judgment is pronounced, and God uses, uses Alexander to destroy them. God humbled the Philistines like he said he would, and he crushed their pride. Now, you'll find this quite interesting. Look at verse 7. The beginning of verse 7 says this. And I will remove their blood from their mouth. That's the Philistines he's talking about. And their detestable things from between their teeth. Now, what does that refer to? the blood from their mouths and the detestable things from between their teeth. That's referring to their abominable idolatry because the Philistines would make wicked sacrifices and then would offer drink uh, and would uh, drink the blood and eat the meat. And so God is saying he's going to judge them because of their abominable sacrifices and rituals. So the idea is this. God will humble the Philistines so bad that it is as though they would spit out the abominable meat and the blood from their mouths. That's the imagery there. Now, watch what comes next. Though God has every right to unleash his judgment, he often shows a measure of grace, doesn't he? God is both just and merciful. He is kind and merciful and will allow a remnant of repentant sinners 
to turn from their wickedness and to come to him. Isn't that right? This mercy and kindness of God can be seen in the last part of verse 7 right here. A hint of God's grace. So look down in the middle of verse 7 with me and I'll show you what I mean. It reads, Then they also, the Philistines, will be a remnant for our God and like a clan in Judah, an Ekron like a Jebusite. What is that saying? It's saying that even though God will bring destruction to the land of Philistia, he will also in kindness bring a measure of salvation. Now what's that? What's, what's going on? There was harsh judgment on the nations all the way through verses 1 to 7. And nation after nation were getting smashed by Alexander. And now all of a sudden the tone changes to something gracious. So what in the world's going on? Well, what we see here, friends, in the middle of verse 7, is a token of God's grace. Now this is important. He says, you'll make a remnant of the Philistines' his people, and they will be identified like among his people Judah. Now that's incredible. There's a shift in what's happening here. Upon God's judgment on the wicked nations, he's also showing a measure of grace to them. Do you guys see that? End of verse 7 says, an Ekron will be like a Jebusite. Now the Jebusites were the inhabitants of Jerusalem before David took the city. You can find that in 2 Samuel 5, verses 6 to 10. And many of the Jebusites remain in the city, and they believe in the true and living God. And so you see, God is saying, once he humbles Ekron, a Philistine city, he will also give them a revival, that they may come to know the true and living God, and so be identified as one of God's people, just like how the Jebusites had come to know the true and living God back in the day of King David. So this is the mercy and the grace of God to the nations. Not only is there comfort for Judah, there is comfort for the enemies of God too. Now, let's just pause there for a second. There's implications here for you and me. In a sense, we can relate to these nations, can't we? We are a Gentile people, undeserving of God's grace. We were once enemies of God, not honoring him as we ought to. And God had every reason to destroy us in our sin, He had every right to show us his just wrath. But friends, he didn't. He did not do that. What he did instead was made us like one of his own by sending his son Jesus Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. So there's comfort here for you. You're here this morning and you're wondering, what in the world am I rambling on about all these ancient places and names? How do they relate to me? Let me just say this. Let me just say this. The God who promised the measure of salvation to these nations is the same God who promised to cleanse you and forgive you when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. He's the same God with the same character, with the same grace. He never changes no matter what timeline of history you find yourself in. And so, friends, we can worship God this morning in thanksgiving. Because he lavished a measure of grace upon us, we who were once his enemies. Now check out verse 8, because this is huge. But I, the Lord, will camp around my house because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. Do you guys know who that is talking about? It's talking about Alexander. 
the one who made his conquest down south all the way to Jerusalem, but did not lay a hand on a single person in that city. Because God camped in his house, and when God who made heaven and earth decides to return home, no one will be able to overcome his house. Warren W. Wearsby, Wearsby, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, in his book, Expository Outlines of the Old Testament, says this. History tells us that Alexander destroyed many cities but not Jerusalem. He threatened the city but never carried out his threats. Before the general arrived, the Jewish high priest had a dream which he felt was from God. And in the dream, he was told to dress in his robes and meet Alexander outside the city. With him went the priests in their white robes. The scene dazzled Alexander. In fact, he claimed he too had dreamed of this very scene. Alexander entered Jerusalem peacefully and never harmed the people or the city in any way. You guys see that? Not a single person of God's people were harmed by Alexander. What does that tell you about God? What does that tell you about God? God is sovereign over everyone and everything, right? What does question two of the catechism, the new city catechism say? You guys should know this. Many of you guys are from Grace Fellowship West. What is God? God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He's eternal, infinite, and unchangeable, and his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. Nothing happens except through him and what? By his will. By his will. No one touches God's people unless he allows it. No oppressor will pass over them anymore. That's what it says. Now that that little phrase at the bottom of verse 8, for now I have seen with my eyes, simply means that God has seen the mistreatment of his people and will be their guardian. It's not so much that God suddenly became enlightened by what was going on. We know that he knows all things. No, he was the one orchestrating all the events that came to pass through the life and work of Alexander. The end of verse 8 means that God saw what grievous wrongs his people were suffering and now promise, promises to bless them. Okay, now I want you to understand something. What we have just walked through, verses 1 to 8, is the prophecy fulfilled by Alexander. And in a moment, we will see in verses 9 and 10 the prophecy fulfilled by Jesus, the Son of God. But what, what I want you to understand is this. Alexander is a type of Christ. He's a type of Christ. And what do I mean by that? God used Alexander as a foreshadowing of the greater and the better conqueror, namely Jesus Christ. God is showing us here what he can do using an ungodly pagan to bring judgment to the enemies of Judah, but also to save her and a remnant of them. Now, God will show us in verses 9 and 10 what he can do through his holy son, Jesus, by bringing final judgment and complete salvation for all people. I mentioned this earlier. If God can use a pagan to accomplish judgment and salvation, watch what he can do when he sends his son to the earth. So keep that in mind. Main point number two now. The divine conqueror. So look with me now to verse 9. Verse 9, now we're getting to the good stuff. I spent some time in verses 1 to 8, just so that you would understand when we would come to verse 9. So judgment and now sweet salvation. Let's see this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Such a familiar verse, isn't it? Now, we get the privilege to see something Zechariah's people didn't see. All they understood up to this point was that God was going to judge their enemies and then rescue them. And so it says, rejoice, get happy, people. Rejoice, salvation is coming to you. The people in Zechariah's time had such great hope as they heard this, and they believed their king, their Messiah, was going to be the one who triumphs like a mighty warrior, who would put an end to their enemies and then conquer the nations with power. You know, they weren't wrong. They just didn't see the whole picture. They just didn't see that their king had to go through the cross first before he goes through with his salvation. And so aren't we so privileged, friends, to be able to see that? To be able to hold in our hands and see with our eyes the full and complete picture of our Savior? Judah didn't see it, but her king was to come first as a lowly and humble servant, as one who would be riding on the foal of a donkey rather than on the saddle of a battle horse, as one who would be clothed with a crown of thorns rather than a crown of gold, as one who would suffer and die on the cross rather than be comfortable and live in a palace. Little did even Zechariah know that he was prophesying about a king who would not only bring salvation to Judah, but to all the people in the world. And friends, that includes you and I, who have placed our faith in Jesus. And then this is the great mystery that the Apostle Paul talked about in Ephesians 3, now made known to us. Remember, he says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So isn't that comforting? For you and I to be Gentiles and naturally separated from God because of our sin, however, God in his mercy promised a coming king who would not only save Judah, but us undeserving sinners as well. That's a comforting king. Can you imagine the the excitement that Matthew and the other gospel writers experienced when they finally understood these verses, verses were fulfilled by Jesus? And then to write them in their gospel accounts so that people would finally understand that this verse in Zechariah 9 was about Jesus all along. What joy must have filled their hearts to be able to witness that. You know, Jesus said he came not to be served, but to serve. He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey to begin his week of preparation so that he would eventually voluntarily be nailed to a cross in order to pay the debt for the sin of the world. Friends, I just want to say this. If you weren't listening to what I've been saying for the past 40 minutes, because it's a lot of history, a lot of places, ancient places, listen to this. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, and you're still on the fence about Jesus, not yet committed, not yet believing. Let me just say this. There is no king like Jesus whose love for sinners led him to come down from heaven and be born in a dirty manger. There is no king like Jesus whose love for sinners led him to feed the poor, heal the sick, 
and raised the dead. There is no king like Jesus whose love for sinners led him to die in their place in order that he may cancel the debt of their sin. There is no king like Jesus whose love for sinners led him to rise from the grave and to conquer death. There is no king like Jesus who can do what he does. Jesus is the king of kings who does not delight in the death of the wicked. He encourages you to come. Come and see that he is good. His burden is light and his yoke is easy. He readily forgives and he's willing to save. Don't waste time in finding fulfillment in other things, friends. Nothing ever satisfies. Only Jesus can satisfy the longing in your heart. Now his time of mercy will eventually run out. And he is coming back again. And when he does, he will this time come back with the sword. And will finally put an end to all evil on the face of the earth. Then he will restore peace on the earth as it was in the Garden of Eden. And make his kingdom of peace from one end of the earth to the other. God says in verse 10, and we'll end here. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the bow of war will be cut off. And he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. Christian, what do I want you to take away from Zechariah 9, verses 1 to 10 this morning? I'll end it here. This will be quick. Two things. The first thing is the fact that he is coming back. He is coming back. The Lord Jesus is coming back. So be watchful and ready as Jesus comes back. Just as he came the first time to die on the cross for your sins, so he's coming a second time to raise you up with him. So rejoice greatly, for your king is coming. Be comforted, for he is coming back for you. The second thing I want you to take away and remember is that the Lord Jesus does not forget his promises. You can rest assured that he remembers you. He remembers you. As a whole, the book of Zechariah testifies to to God's unfailing remembrance and love to the people he has chosen. Even though 70 years had gone by and they were captives in Babylon, God did not fail his promise to return to them and restore them again. He did it. He has done it in Zechariah's time. And as for you, Christian, he has set his seal on you, and he does not forget his promises concerning you. When you place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God promised he would forgive you. And indeed, he has. He promised to always be with you, and he is. He promised that you will one day rule with him, and eventually you will. So believe his promises, for they are kept by him. So friends, as you prepare your hearts for this Good Friday, remember, Jesus is the the divine conqueror who conquered death and sin for us, and he is worthy of our praise and worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Son, Jesus Christ. As we have seen in this passage, who is greater than all the kings of the earth, even Alexander. Thank you that he came, Lord, to bring salvation to the people. And thank you, Lord, that we have experienced that salvation in him because of your pure grace and mercy. 
So this morning, Lord, as we continue to worship you, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see Christ as glorious as he is, that, Lord, we may worship him more faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.